0: Market rate? £3,000 a day? Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer.
1: Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice.
0: The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, The Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matchett. I am the Deputy Political Editor at the paper and with me as always this week from the depths of the Scottish Parliament is Alistair Grant, our political editor. How are you Alistair?
1: Yeah, not too bad. We're actually in a really nice committee room lovely, just to yeah. set the scene. There's a really beautiful view of Arthur's Sea out the window. Yeah, it's you've lovely. Got, you've
0: actually got a full-on, because it's the crag's just behind us, you know, with dynamic earth as well. And you've got a beautiful sunset as well. You know, yeah. it's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Clouds glowing orange. I love it. It's great.
1: You're painting a scene.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, Obviously, this week, it's been a big week in devolutions history, I think. We'll talk a little bit about FMQs later on, but we'll focus, to start with, on the ongoing gender rouse, gender war, depending on who you talk to. Take us through just quickly what happened on Monday. We spoke about it a little bit last week because we knew it was on the way, but the big thing happened on, on Monday... First time ever that section 35 of the Scotland Act was used by the UK government.
1: Yeah, so it's hard to talk about anything else this week, I think. It's uh, the main story. We talked about this last week. This is, of course, the Scottish government's legislation to make it easier for trans people to change their legal gender. There's a lot of different aspects to the bill. It lowers the age that you can apply for a gender recognition certificate from 18 to 16. Uh, It makes the process uh, a lot shorter So it had been voted through Holyrood's before Christmas by a pretty huge majority, but also caused a lot of controversy. And we were aware that the UK government was unhappy with it, didn't like it. And that wasn't a secret. And the expectation was in the run-up to, in the last couple of weeks, that the UK government might act to block it by using this Section 35 of the Scotland Act. It was referred to sometimes as the nuclear option because it's never been done before. I think there is an acceptance in the UK government that it's not a good look in some regards to be kind of sweeping in and Mm -hmm. telling Holyrood what to do in that sense so there's also a reluctance to use this in the past I think And as I say, it's never been used before. But then on Monday, actually quite annoyingly for journalists, it was about half five on Monday evening as uh, we were kind of thinking about maybe going home. (laughs) The Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack uh, confirmed this. He announced they are going to do a Section 385 order, which will block this legislation from getting royal assent. So essentially preventing it from becoming law. Mm -hmm. And this has just sparked an almighty row, as you'd expect. It's turned into a bit of a constitutional row. So you've got Nicola Sturgeon, essentially saying it's an outrage, it's disgraceful, but also saying it's really kind of damaging to devolution. Uh, a lot of, kind of language around that. You had Stephen Flynn, the SNP Westminster leader, who raised it at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. And I think he said something like, it's a slippery slope to direct rule or something yeah, similar to exactly that, which thing. is quite extreme language. So it's t- turned into this constitutional row. The UK government would say that they've got concerns around how this legislation impacts on the UK-wide Equality Act. And I think if you look at their, uh, they kind of released their reasons for doing mm-hmm. a Section 35 that you can look at online if you want. And to be honest, they're quite wide-ranging. Yeah. It's almost every single thing about the bill they don't yeah. like. So I think this idea that you could maybe have UK and Scottish ministers getting around the table to kind of thrash out a way forward, maybe amend the bill, is a non-starter. Because there's, I don't think there's any way you could amend this bill to keep the UK government happy, that would leave you with functioning legislation. Yeah. They just don't like pretty much any aspect of it. Uh, so yeah, this could rumble on for months, if not years now, uh, if the Scottish government uh, does a judicial review, tries to challenge this in the courts, that could go to the court of session, it could then be appealed if they lose that, or, you know, whichever side loses that to the inner house, eventually making it into the Supreme Court. So it could potentially be rumbling on almost up until the next general election it's one of
0: those things isn't it i mean let, let's think back to the independence referendum supreme court case that cost two hundred and fifty thousand pounds the alex salmon judicial review cost the government at least in in totality 500 odd thousand pounds in damages and and costs for, for him this could cost them money as well as you know time as you say you know these things will go to the outer house of the court session first, I think the understanding from people who, who know this sort of stuff is that, you know, that could take months just to get to that first court case. The appeal could then take a few extra months and then the Supreme Court would take months. So this is going to rumble on, rumble on, rumble on. And it's interesting talking to a few people across several parties actually about this is that... There's a view from, unsurprisingly, there is a view from supporters of the bill that this is policy differences dressed up in legal argument and that this is the UK government who, as you kind of alluded to, fundamentally don't like what this bill is doing and that their justification for this order is on the basis of you know, legal arguments that can be made look quite potentially quite strong. Lord Hope said they were devastating. He's a former deputy president of the Supreme Court. He knows what he's talking about with these things. But maybe the constitutional aspect of this was not maybe thought the whole way through. I don't know what you think. Do do we think that the UK government really understood the constitutional war that they were starting? You would assume
1: that they did. I think they did. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think there is an element of, you know, the quote-unquote culture war to this in the sense that there is this policy difference between the two governments. But as you say, I mean, the UK government's side has gone down this route. I thought Lord Hope's comments were interesting, as you say, former Supreme Court judge, and seems to I think that the UK government's reasons for doing a Section 35 order were devastating to the Scottish government, as you say, yeah. and that it'd be a waste of time, essentially, yeah. for the Scottish government to try and fight that through the courts. I think that both sides are playing politics with this to a degree. But I would caveat that by saying that I think when... The Scottish Government first put this legislation through Holyrood. I don't think they did it for constitutional reasons. I think they did it because they believe in the law. I think SNP MSPs, Green MSPs, Labour MSPs, I think they just believe that this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. They believe in these changes. But Having said that, I think in the last few days you have seen Nicola Sturgeon and other figures in the SNP making constitutional points. They have been making political points around this and about this perception that UK government is encroaching in these devolved areas and that they essentially are trying to undermine Holyrood and undermine Scottish democracy. There's a lot of language about Scottish democracy and about devolution being under threat. Whereas I think the UK government would say that this is devolution in action to a degree. I mean, Section 35 is part of the Scotland Act that created... The institution that we're sitting in right we're now saying, yeah. so it's been there since the beginning it's been baked in since the beginning it just hasn't been used
0: having said that though and one of the things that is i think going slightly unsaid through all of this is there's a lot of you know section 35 as always existed. section 35 is a key part of the scotland act the fundamental fact of the matter is it's never been used it's not like this is a regular piece of the devolution settlement like for example cross-governmental meetings between John Swinney and Jeremy Hunt talking about the finances of, of, of Scotland. This is something that no UK government of any colour has decided it should use before. And that has the, the knock-on effect of us talking about it, not knowing really how it's applied. Because we can listen to experts like Lord Hope, who who's saying, you know, the statement of reasons justifies its use and suggests that Scottish government, you know, will lose this case. But there's no case law for us to point at and go, well, this is how it was was used in, in previous disputes. Um, there's no court judgment. There's just academic thoughts and papers on it. And I'm not even sure there's a huge amount of that written on it because it's used so infrequently.
1: I, th- I think that's true. Uh, I think, I mean, the next thing I say could be horribly wrong. If it is, <laughs> and a lawyer wants to write in, then fine. But I think my understanding is that the nature of a judicial review would mean that what the, gov- the Scottish government was challenging was quite specific. It'd be the reasonableness, the lawfulness yeah. of the UK government going down that route, as opposed to the merits of what they've done. Absolutely. So yeah. I think that's important because it means that, you know, from Lord Hope's point of view, for yeah. example, maybe the threshold of them meeting that is is, is not...
0: Well, that, that's exactly my point in the sense that talking to a Scottish government source a few days ago, you know, the, the question that will be asked in the courts is... I think the language of the Scotland Act is something along the lines of, you know, reasonable grounds yeah. to believe that it would have some unreasonable impact on the operation of UK law. That isn't verbatim, that, uh, that is a close approximation.
1: You could argue that's quite a low threshold to and have this is reasonable the thing, grounds. the yeah,
0: but the, the person I was speaking to was saying, you know, this is, that is what will be discussed at court, is whether or not there were reasonable grounds for section 35. Ultimately, it's up to probably, by the time we get there, three or four Supreme Court judges who write the opinion to decide whether or not that was. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Section 35 is a good or a bad thing or the the sheer existence of it within the Scotland Act threatens devolution, which is certainly the language from the SNP over, over recent days. That feels over the top.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it ties into this wider sense in a Scottish politics from, you know, parties like the SNP, like the Greens, that the UK, government is, the UK government is encroaching in these devolved areas. We saw this in the aftermath of Brexit, the kind of returning of powers from Brussels to mm. the UK. Uh, we've seen it with the kind of levelling up funding. Yeah. There's been arguments around this. There's this wider sense that the UK government is getting involved in areas that are devolved where they shouldn't really be involved in. I think with the levelling up funding to some degree, that's unarguable because they are pumping funding into areas that would normally be the, uh, the kind of area of the Scottish government. But, so it's, it's it within that context, but some of the language has certainly been quite uh, dramatic. I think the, particularly Stephen Flynn's kind of reference to direct rule obviously has quite a specific meaning in the UK. You're assuming that what he means by that is a suspension or abolition of Holyrood, mm-hmm. which seems quite dramatic. And I thought it was interesting when we did the, after the First Minister's questions in Holyrood, journalists have a kind of post-FMQ's briefing with Nicola Sturgeon's spokesman, and we had that today in the Scottish Parliament and he was very unwilling to echo that language or even to really engage with that point. He just didn't want to repeat it. Um, I think he just said something like that's Stephen Flynn's words. So, yeah.
0: It's interesting. There's something I've noticed from watching these exchanges, uh, both up here in Holyrood and also in Westminster, is that it's it's almost flipped how each party involved in this is, is discussing it. So, apart from Scottish Labour who continue to attempt to be the kind of responsible adult in the room. You know, when we passed gender recognition reform in in Holyrood, and when that was passed, it was passed with the SNP being very righteous, being very calm in their language a lot of the time, and, you know, trying to bring in as many people as possible into the GRR, you know, circle of happiness, basically, to make sure it gets through. Um, Whereas on the other side, you had absolute sheer fury and anger and disappointment and just general anger from the Conservative benches and from, from rebels within both you know, Labour and, and the SNP. That's flipped, where we now have Alastair Jack standing up in the House of Commons going, you know, this is, don't be ridiculous, you know, SNP. This is a legitimate thing that we can do. It's part of the law. It's not, you know, it's not something you should be scared of. That is an interesting, to me at least, it's an interesting juxtaposition to where we were just before Christmas when all hell broke loose in the chamber, you
1: know, a few hundred feet away from us. Yeah, and you've been writing about this today. Where do you think is going to go next?
0: I, I, I've written, written about it today. You'll read it in the Scotland on Sunday. I think that the fundamental fact is we will hear a lot of opinions. We heard a lot of opinions ahead of the Indy Ref 2 Supreme Court judgment, but I think the legal opinion on that particular case was more clearly split towards where it where the where the judgment eventually went. We are gonna hear ad nauseum from half of the legal community and other the other half of the legal community about where this might go. The fundamental fact of the matter is we won't know until this goes to court. We'll get our first inkling when it's heard at the outer house of the court session, which I think will be the first place it goes. We'll get our second inkling at the inner house and then we'll get the final word on it at the Supreme Court. We'll have, you know, angry exchanges in, in Holyrood when the, the amount of money spent on, on this legal case is routinely published, you'd assume, by, by the Scottish government. And we will have the SNP in Parliament in Westminster standing up and saying repeatedly that this is an attack on devolution. And to use a favourite phrase of the SNP press office, the only route <laughs> to X not happening is independence. So that's where I think we'll be. I think, I think we'll be in a bit of limbo with this for, for a while. I think you only have to look at the hate crime bill which is not enacted yet, three years on almost, or two, certainly two years on from, you know, it passing in, in this place. Um, it's not going to be enacted until mid-2024, as revealed exclusively by the Scotsman. <laughs> but it's that sort of thing. Is like It could end up sat on a legislative shelf, the GRR, and I think that would be really painful for Nicola Sturgeon to see, given the amount of political capital that you can just see draining out of her and the SNP on this issue particularly when it comes to certain parts of the independence support who are just, this is just a bill that's anathema to them. They just don't like it. They don't want it. They believe it's a waste of time. They want independence yesterday. And that this is resource that could be spent fighting for independence that instead is being spent on something that they think is a threat to women and girls. We'll see how it goes, I think is the fundamental aspect. I don't know what you think. I, I mean, is it something that, is this whole debate something that we could have avoided um it's a big question i know
1: but well no in the sense that this has been a issue that's kind of rumbling in society for a while now there's kind of wider debates around it there's a debate going on in the wider uk about this there have been figures like Jackie rowling there's lots of journalists who write about this a lot i think it's just it's one of these issues that we as a society are grappling with and people have know very different views on it and that was always going to end up in the scottish parliament at some point the parliament reflects conversations that are going on in wider society to that extent it can't really be avoided i don't think i've seen some people i think even yourself suggesting that if this had happened a couple of years ago it might have gone through but i think it's almost i mean this has become more of an issue in recent years anyway so it's kind of it's kind of talking about something that wasn't really discussed back then in the same way it is now. It's, it's an issue that's gone into public consciousness mm. very much in the last couple of years. So I think if legislation was introduced a few years ago, it, it wasn't really something that was being debated in the same way it is now.
0: It's certainly something, I think, if we... You, know, you mentioned, I tweeted that, I think, that well, after Section 35, that, you know, had this happened in... Had the GRR been passed in 2017, which, for the avoidance of doubt is you know would have been in line with your initial promises from many political parties in Holyrood. You know, it probably wouldn't have been challenged by a Section 35 order, mainly because Theresa May, the then Prime Minister, is a supporter of these changes. I, also just, I, don't,
1: I just don't think it was really an issue back then. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, obviously it was an issue, and people have been talking about this and living with it, but it, it wasn't as heated and as high up in the public agenda as it's mm. become now. I mean, it has happened quite fast as these things go. Obviously, it's something that, again, some journalists have been writing about for all, quite, quite a long time now, quite a few years. But certainly, there has been an increase in the public debate and the public interest in this. So to that degree, I mean, I think issues like this are always controversial. When you're talking about what people perceive to be conflicting rights, I mean, that's always going to be a controversial issue.
0: Well, let's hear from Alexander Brown, our Westminster correspondent, who has a dispatch from the House of Commons and
2: Westminster. Hello, and welcome back to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the paper's Westminster correspondent, and obviously the chatter here has also all been about section 35. It is quite interesting, actually, which is good because we've written so many thousands of words about it. But... I think one thing that has been underplayed is that this is not a united front in the UK government. There is obviously lots of criticism from the UK government and from lots of Tories. And the rhetoric tends to be around, you know, they just disagree. Right. But that's not necessarily the case for all the Conservatives. So from my understanding, the Equalities Secretary does not support. The legislation proposed in Scotland, the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, and wants it to be blocked for that reason. And the Scottish Secretary Sir Jack, actually, I'm told, was against the use of Section 35. I mean, that's the rumours, and also wants you know that's why in his letter to the First Minister, he calls for amendments. He wants to find a way forward rather than this being a blanket ban, because regardless of whether you agree with legislation, if it gets blocked. This is fuel to the flames of independence. So and that view, mixed view is also held in the Conservative Party. You know, among the MPs, Caroline Noakes, said that it doesn't interfere with legislation at all. I mean, there are lots of us all espousing our views when we don't necessarily have legal backgrounds. I've interviewed a couple of people this week, one of whom said that... It's not about whether you agree with the legislation, and they criticised the words from Lord Falconer, who basically said that he didn't think Section 35 was justified. His argument was that the only reason it can be blocked is, any, if the legal argument is, if any any reasonable person could have come to the view that Alistair Jack did, that it interfered with the Equalities Act. If that is the case, the Scottish Government are in trouble. I also think it's really worth noting what is happening with the Labour Party, which I know hasn't really been a thing worth saying for a long time especially in the more scottish centric uh, part of the podcast but keir starmer pretty quiet on the old trans rights pretty pretty not saying any words pretty disappearing pretty ambivalent other than say he doesn't agree with the age being of 16 which you know is not necessarily the view of the scottish labor party who were whipped to back the bill Anna Sawa asked about it, says, you know, oh, well, it's a matter for that Labour Party, isn't it? Really, no one agrees with each other across all the other parties. And for getting any constitutional bust up, there's going to be more fights in Westminster. There are a few SNP MPs who don't like it and aren't saying anything. There's quite a lot more Labour MPs who don't like it and aren't saying anything. I think Lucy Powell said this week, oh, I, I'm going to keep my opinion to myself, which is... Really just a classic metaphor for the Labour Party on most issues for the past few years. So it's been pretty uh, pretty grim. PMQs, you know, the Theatre of Dreams, the Bastion of Debate. That was a riot this week, if you're unfortunate enough to watch it. Keir Starmer asked about ambulance waiting times, and Rishi Sunak, perhaps forgetting that he was Prime Minister, blamed him for the strikes, as if striking workers were the reason why people were having to wait you know, 36 hours for an ambulance and why some people were literally dying on the floor. Just really, really unpleasant. Tory MPs are quite embarrassed by that. It's, it's difficult because the Conservatives are trying to create an argument at the moment, and they've been told this by the um, head of CCHQ and, and, and Downing Street. They want to go after Labour more. They're a bit scared now that the polls are not changing so they're going after Keir Starmer as much as possible. The problem is... He's a knight of the realm whose only scandal so far in the tabloid press was that he, you know, bought a donkey farm for his dying mum to look at from her house, which doesn't exactly stick as a, oh this guy's really bad. I mean, they've gone back to the you know the old ideas of the best. They photoshopped Kia in the pocket of the RMT chief Mick Lynch, which would like a lot, which would make even a lot more sense if Mick Lynch hadn't repeatedly criticised Keir Starmer And also the RMT actually paid any money to the Labour Party, which it does not. But then when her facts got in the way of a good attack advert, Brexit says hello. So, you know, much of the same. No real answers, no real progress. And I will have to be telling you all a lot more about legal documents uh, as the podcast goes on over the next few weeks and months. So I think I speak on behalf of all of us and I say, oh, God, why? That's it from me. And you'll hear more from me next week. Have a lovely weekend.
0: Thank you very much for Alex. We'll move on now, I think, to First Minister's questions today in Holyrood. Um, obviously, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. I'd like to mention for those worried about the sun that it has now set, and it's not quite as pretty as it was outside our window. Still pretty good. I was actually quite surprised. I know Nicola Sturgeon, in one answer to Douglas Ross, managed to get GRR wedged into yeah, her response pretty, pretty desperate certainly crowbarred in, I think would be a fair <laughs> description definitely crowbarred <laughs> but let's focus on Douglas Ross's approach at FMQs today because for what has felt like the first time in a year education was the main focus of, of his questions at, at FMQs
1: I think we should expect some more questions like this at FMQs in the coming weeks as we approach the Scottish budget being kind of voted through Holyrood ahead of the new financial year Nicola can kind of referred to this today, but every single year there are always stories about what councils are considering to deal with cuts. And,
0: and that was referring to Glasgow, wasn't it? The 800 yeah. teachers' job losses.
1: In this specific case, this is a report in today's Thursday's daily record about plans that Glasgow City Council are considering, which effectively amount to potentially uh, cuts of around 800 teachers. And there's a lot of concern about from trade unions, as you'd expect, the EIS, about the impact that would have on teachers, the impact it would have on children, and a lot of concern in Holyrood today. I mean, Douglas Ross obviously raised it and effectively saying to Nicola Sturgeon, you know, this is happening in your watch. This is because of your funding of councils, obviously a lot of the money that councils have is from the Scottish government. He was saying he's deeply concerned about it. What are you going to do about it, essentially? And Nicola Sturgeon saying that councils are autonomous. They obviously have degree of control over how they spend their own funding, but also making the point I was making earlier that these plans are floated every year and many of them don't happen. But I think it is concerning that councils are having to put plans like this on the table. I mean, it obviously shows that they're concerned about their funding. They're concerned about how they're gonna make the make ends meet in the coming year. We've got this ongoing cost of living crisis. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, it's a real issue. Um, but it was, I mean, this is, I think this is the first time education has been raised in this way at FMQs for yeah weeks, yeah is usually, for the past couple of weeks, Past actually it feels like a lot longer than that. It's yeah. been health that's been the main issue. Um, but before the NHS crisis kind of exploded over the winter, education was one of these things that regularly came up at FMQs because Nicola Sturgeon famously said in the past that education is her top priority. Um, and that language is always thrown back at her. Um, and the other thing that Douglas Ross brought up was her pledge to substantially close the poverty-related attainment gap. And we can maybe touch on this a little bit because this is something that comes up again and again, partly because the poverty-related attainment gap is still very much a thing, it mm. hasn't been closed, but also partly because that phrase is quite vague, substantially eliminate No one's quite clear what that means in practice, and they're very reluctant to define it in any kind of meaningful sense. I think today, again, to refer to the post-FMQ's briefing, the First Minister's spokesman effectively took the line that you know, we all speak the same language, you know fine well what substantially eliminated means. But it's, it just gives them a little bit of wriggle room. And it also conflicts with previous comments that Nicola Sturgeon has made, not in SNP manifestos, but in interviews where she said something along the lines of that she wants to, her aim is to completely close the attainment gap. So it just seems like there's always a little bit of wriggle room around this. And, and also they, they often rely on the pandemic to point to why that gap is not really going anywhere. You mentioned councils, and you know, we do
0: get these stories pretty much every year, don't we, of the axe is going to fall, £50 million
1: fiscal black hole. In Usually it's buildings acts. that are going to get sold exactly. off and yeah. leisure centres closing down. It's
0: highly rare that these plans come to fruition because councils tend to, to be honest... Find other things to cut than the big. Some th- things will be cut, but it's yes. just the the kind of apocalyptic warning. Exactly. What I was going to say is, as obviously concerning that these warnings are, there's some political gamesmanship going on here, isn't there? Even though Glasgow City Council is a SNP-run council, it still suffers from the same shortfall in funding that you know all other councils have are suffering from, and this is a a card that they can play in the budget process. Going, look you're not giving councils enough money, this is what happens if you don't give councils enough money. It's as much a political statement as it is a fiscal. Uh, There's certainly politics in it,
1: yeah. And you can see that with uh, the council um, umbrella body, COSLA, Mm. has had similarly dire warnings about services at breaking point. Uh, I think they said that they have pressures roughly equivalent to about £1 billion, and they got an absolute tiny fraction of Mm. that in real terms from the Scottish government. Mm. So they've made, you know, very kind of dire warnings about what that means for councils, what that means for cuts. And to make a similar point to you, COSLA is currently SNP-run. The COSLA president is an SNP councillor, resources spokeswoman, SNP councillor. To that degree, it's interesting to see local SNP politicians criticising the Scottish government, coming to them and saying, you know, you've underfunded us for years now, you need to do something about this.
0: There, There was a ridiculous situation, I think it was just after the budget, or even on the day of the budget, where you had... COSLA president, Shona Morrison, attacking the council settlement. You also had the resources spokesperson of COSLA, who I think is also an SNP um, politician and councillor, attacking the local government funding. And then you had the local government convener of the SNP congratulating the government on uh, the the funding. She she also happens to be a councillor. You had the situation where the SNP were both attacking and criticising itself, dependent on who you spoke to and who they were connected with. It was... It underlines for me sometimes the suspension of disbelief that we in the media and the public kind of have to cope with when obviously these people all will have probably the same view or at least it's highly unlikely that SNP politicians are going to be criticising the SNP government in the way that they did but also it's probably unlikely that all councillors within the SNP represented by the local government convener, think the same way as the local government convener.
1: Yeah, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a councillor out there in Scotland who genuinely thinks that the settlements they get from the Scottish government are... Enough. Enough, yeah. yeah. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find that. <laughs> and I think the figures, uh, certainly over recent years, back that up. You know, the Scottish government always says that it's you know, passed on its funding to councils, but if you look at the, uh, the rate in which the Scottish government's budget has gone up and the rate in which council budgets have gone up... Councils have been to that degree have had less money
0: let's um circle back to education, look forward a little bit. Uh, Douglas Ross mentioned it, but we're currently in in the in the midst of some strikes um, from the eIS schools closed I think in at least two council areas every day now until the end of the month, including Edinburgh next next week i mean this is this is a dispute that's been ongoing for months now. Going back to April of last year, and um, is there any end to this? It doesn't seem like Shirley Ann Somerville, the education secretary, particularly keen to personally get round the negotiating table, our Humza Yusuf, and sort it out.
1: Well, I mean, there's kind of uh, it doesn't seem like there's going to be an end to this anytime soon. There's obviously kind of talks ongoing between the unions and the Scottish government. It's a quite a common opposition attack line that Shirley Ann Somerville isn't doing enough, and appears to be quite calm about it. I think was uh, one of the words that was used in the. The chamber today, um, but uh, we don't. I suppose you don't really know the talks that are going on behind the scenes. Uh, the Scottish government would make the point that they have a limited budget; uh, they can't borrow money. They can't. The budget is not, you know, it's, it's, it's tight. Money is tight. We saw before Christmas all the kind of problems with council settlements. I think it's something we're going to see more and more of in the months of, the months ahead. To be honest, you've got all sorts of different aspects of society calling for pay rises and a lot of public sympathy for them as well. It's something we've found on yeah. our own polling at the Scotsman, that generally the public are very supportive of particularly the health service, particularly teachers. Uh, I think they do genuinely think that they deserve more money. They don't have good enough deals. Although people are very inconvenienced by strike action, they might be quite annoyed by it. In general, they're quite supportive of it for those kind of key groups so yeah I think as as we go on and potentially even into the years to come I don't want to be depressing about it but (laughs) (laughs) we've got budgetary constraints and this cost of living crisis that not going away and the kind of impact of inflation is going to continue to make itself felt
0: I don't want to be depressing about it but here's a very depressing view of the future by Alistair Grant Uh, (laughs) thank you very much Alistair that's all we've got time for this week make sure to follow The Scotsman on Twitter also you can sign up to our politics newsletter where you can get politics stories straight to your email address as they break by going to scotsman.com slash newsletter. You will also get the first notification that a new episode of the Steamy or potentially other politics podcasts that might be coming down the line in your email inbox as soon as they land. Thank you very much, Alistair. Thank you very much, Alex, in London. Thank you very much at home for listening. Bye-bye.